0: us. It says, so the disciples went away again to their homes. As I mentioned last time, this verse is transitional. On one hand, it's finishing what has happened right before that. It presents Peter and John leaving the scene of the empty tomb after they saw that the body of Jesus was missing. After they saw the undisturbed grave clothes that had remained in the tomb. But this verse also sets up the next section in which we find Mary Magdalene, who had been at the tomb previously and left it, now returning to the tomb. So let me take a moment just to summarize what seems to be the probable sequence of events in all of this so far. First, Jesus was crucified on a Friday, and then around dawn on Sunday, he was raised from the dead. And there were some things that happened at that moment that Matthew uh, lets us know about. Matthew 28, verses 2 to 4. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. Verse 4. The guards who were guarding the tomb, the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. That was quite a moment when the stone was rolled away. Second, a point in time came on Sunday morning where there was a group of faithful women who were planning to set out to go to the tomb. One woman, though, Mary Magdalene, went ahead of them and arrived there alone And alone at the tomb, all she saw was that entrance stone rolled away. She did not look inside. And based just on that, the stone, she concluded that grave robbers had stolen the body of Jesus. So she fled to find the disciples, in particular Peter and John, to report that to them, what she had seen. It's very possible that it was while Mary was looking for those two men that the other women did arrive at the tomb, entered it, and some angels were there for them, and they heard the news of the resurrection. Here's an account of that, Mark 16, 5 and 6. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He's not here. Well, Mary, though, was looking for Peter and John. She found them, told them about the rolled-away stone, and it was that news that prompted those two men then to race to the open tomb, evidently after the women had left, after the angels had even left. Entering in, they saw the grave clothes left behind, and then they returned to their places where they were staying in Jerusalem. So that summary brings us to verse 11. Mary Magdalene, driven by this overwhelming sense of grief and loss, she returns to the grave After the two men had departed. And once there, she has two very unique encounters. And that's how we will outline our study today. These two unique encounters that Mary Magdalene had at the tomb. Number one, an angelic encounter. An angelic encounter. Verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so, as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. Now, as I said, before when she was there, Mary did not look inside the tomb at all in her previous visit. And evidently, in returning, she had not crossed paths with Peter and John to hear about the undisturbed grave clothes. Therefore, she's still thinking the same thing, that some grave robbers had broken in and stolen the body of Jesus. And she's filled with grief still so much so that it says she broke down weeping, just hoping to find someone who might know where they took the body of Jesus and where they had put it. However, this time she did look into the tomb, and what she saw was a surprise to her. There were people in there. Verse 12, And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. These were angels in dazzling white raiment, one perched at either side of the slab where Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. Verse 13, and they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Now, we saw earlier that Jesus used that same term, woman, to address his own mother, a couple of times he did it back at the wedding in Cana and we saw him use that term to address her when he was hanging on the cross. And I've mentioned to you along the way that it really is hard to come up with an English equivalent of what that address would be. All we know is it was not disrespectful at all. So here the angels use this general and respectful address in a question that they pose to Mary. A question that was actually A gentle reproof. She and the disciples should not be so filled with grief. They should have known all of this would happen. They should have known and understood that Jesus would die and would rise again because he had told them it all would happen. There should not have been all this consuming grief and confusion. Well, Mary did not actually recognize these two individuals as being angels. So verse 13, she said to them, well, it's because they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. You see, Mary just wanted help locating the body. So that was her first encounter when she returned to the tomb. She unknowingly, at least on her part, had a conversation with angels, an angelic encounter. That leads to the second encounter, number two. A divine encounter. A divine encounter. Verse 14. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Now, don't be shocked at this. Mary's not the only one who did not recognize Jesus after he had risen from the dead. We'll see it in the next chapter, John chapter 21. Uh, where the disciples were out in a boat and they did not recognize this man standing on the shore. Chapter 21, verse 4 says this, When the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. We're familiar with that story of those men on the road to Emmaus. They had been hearing all that had taken place in Jerusalem. They were discussing it. Luke chapter 24, uh, Jesus joins them walking on the road. And it says in verse 16 of Luke 24, their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Well, we don't know for certain why Mary didn't recognize Jesus. Maybe her eyes were blinded intentionally, prevented from understanding who it was Jesus. Like those men on the road to Emmaus, we don't know. On the practical level, we can say this. She wasn't looking for a live Jesus. She was looking for a dead Jesus. I mean, she still had this image of the battered, bloody corpse she had seen on the cross. That's what she was looking for rather than the living Jesus who was now standing before her in the garden. To her, this man was just a stranger. And this stranger repeated the question by the angels, and then he added a second question, verse 15. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? That additional second question was setting the stage for Mary to learn something important that she needed to think about Jesus in a whole new way. However, in her grief, she just continued on in her confusion. Verse 15, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, If you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. She's thinking maybe this man, this stranger had been involved in moving the body. Maybe since he was a gardener, that was her conclusion. Maybe the owner of the tomb had finally told this gardener, get that body out of there. He's a convicted criminal. I don't want that body staying in there. We don't know. We just know she wanted to ensure that Jesus had a proper burial. She says, I'll I'll take him away. I'll take care of the body. But then with a single word, Jesus opened Mary's eyes. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. That word, that single word, Jesus speaking it as he had before was enough to remove her blindness, to take away her doubt, her confusion, even her sorrow. You know, I couldn't help but think of John chapter 10 as I read that verse and dug into it a little more. Those verses in John 10 where it talks about the shepherd and how the sheep hear the voice. For example, verse 3, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. This sure is a graphic illustration of that verse 4 of John 10 and the sheep follow him because they know his voice verse 27 Christ says my sheep hear my voice and I know him and they follow me and I get it that that's talking about all his true sheep hear the the call of the gospel and as his sheep we we hear him speak in the word we know what truth is we hear his voice but there in the garden it was very very literal called her by name. And she did indeed recognize Jesus at that moment. Verse 16 says, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Rabboni is an Aramaic word. So John translated it for his original readers who were mostly Greek speaking individuals It's a strengthened form of the more familiar term rabbi. It was used as a title simply to express honor and respect, reverence to a respected teacher. So she uses that term to address Jesus with reverence, but evidently, in addition to that, she was so overcome with joy and relief that she did what the other women had done, and fell at his feet and clung to him when the other women saw Jesus. Matthew 28, verse 9. Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. We can conclude that Mary did something similar to that because of Jesus' remark now in verse 17. Jesus said to her, "'Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father.'" Just so you'll know, this is one of the most difficult verses in the Gospel of John to interpret. It's a command that's a prohibition, and it's reflected in various ways in the different translations in the uh, NASB, the New American Standard Version that I tend to use, along with the ESV and the New Legacy Bible. uh, They all put it the same way, stop clinging to me. The familiar King James term is, touch me not. NIV says something like, do not hold on to me. What did Jesus mean by it? Well, first of all, this command, this prohibition is in the present tense. And many times, that signals the need to stop something that's already in progress or stop something that's about to be attempted. The context will determine whether that's the meaning of a present tense uh, prohibition and such is the case here in this context. Mary was grasping Jesus and she needed to stop. Second, the verb itself does mean more than just simple touching. It can be used to refer to uh, more intense physical contact like clinging or seizing or holding on to something. So any of those ideas would fit here. Third, Mary's told to stop doing this because her grasping of Jesus, which from her perspective was perhaps just simply to keep him from disappearing again, it meant that she did not comprehend what was transpiring now in God's plan for the Son. She did not understand He would disappear, but for a particular reason, to return to heaven. Yes, he would continue to be physically present on the earth for a brief time still. Acts chapter 1 tells us it was about 40 days, and it would be in his glorified body. But then after that, he would ascend to the Father And that means that his death and resurrection had forever transformed his relationship to all of his followers. It would no longer be the same as it was. Therefore, Mary could not just hold on to the past. She couldn't just keep things the way they had been. She was not to pursue the type of relationship that she formerly had with Jesus a higher mode of exalted existence would ensue with his ascension. And that would be followed by something he taught earlier, that he would not leave his followers alone, but he was sending the Holy Spirit to indwell them. So to summarize, Jesus was pointing her forward and not backward in how she should relate to him and commune with him. Therefore, with that perspective established, Jesus then sent her out, sent Mary to the apostles to deliver the same good news of this new relationship with him. Verse 17, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Let's stop there. That statement by Jesus is absolutely packed with rich significance for us. Notice that Jesus called his disciples his brethren. That fits, you see, with this new relationship. They've been referred to other ways. They've been referred to as slaves. He called them friends, but never before now has he referred to them as his brethren. But that's what Jesus' work of redemption made possible and accomplished. Because of his death and resurrection and exaltation, his followers share in his own sonship to the Father. And that's why Jesus went on to say that he was going to his Father and your Father. His God, your God. The author of Hebrews says the same thing. Listen to this, Hebrews 2.11. For both he who sanctifies, the Lord, that's the Lord, and those who are sanctified, that's his followers, are all from one Father for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So let's talk about this for a moment because there is an important doctrine involved here. These facts, that Jesus' father is our father, and that we're his brethren, that point to the doctrine of adoption, the doctrine of adoption. God adopts as his sons and daughters, Scripture just refers all to all of us as sons, he adopts as his sons those who trust in Christ. Listen to Paul's comment in Galatians 3, verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. But listen to how the New Testament puts this in terms of of adoption. Romans 8, 15 and 16. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Why are we children of God? Because God has adopted us as sons so we can call him our Father. Ephesians 1 verse 5 puts it in terms of God's sovereign will causing this to happen. Ephesians 1 5 says he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. This is such an important and encouraging doctrine, even more so, dare I say it, than the doctrine of justification. Now, don't get me wrong. Justification, very important. Justification, essential. What's the doctrine of justification? In justification, we find the reality that God, the eternal divine judge, Pronounces a sinner forgiven. It's a legal concept with legal language. He pronounces the criminal, the sinner forgiven, and therefore not liable to punishment anymore. Therefore, we have a new legal standing before God. We can exist in his presence without the threat of judgment. So, yes, we are thankful for our justification. However, adoption is even richer. This week at the conference, uh, Dr. Joel Beakey was actually doing a session on the Puritans' teaching on the doctrine of adoption. So it was very timely for me. I'll just summarize something he said here. He put it this way. Adoption means that God, the divine judge, after pronouncing the verdict, comes down from his bench, as it were, puts his arms around us and says... Come home with me now. I am making you a part of my family. You see, in adoption, God brings us into the intimacy of personal relationship with him. You can say it this way. We've switched families. I mean, we're all born into a particular earthly family. We're born into Adam's fallen family. Family, And it is a really dysfunctional family. But those who trust in Christ are cut off from Adam's family and were grafted into God's spiritual family. Therefore, we are made children of God. And in this intimate personal relationship with God, then we are brothers, sisters of Christ. Romans 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he, the Son, would be the firstborn among many brethren. So due to our adoption, Jesus is now our older brother. And we've been brought into his same relationship of love with the Father And what is that relationship? It's one of sonship. And sonship involves the idea of heirship, being an heir. So as sons, we are co-heirs together with the eternal son himself, Jesus Christ. That's what God has done by an act of sovereign grace. He not only treats us as if we're not guilty legally, he makes us part of his family and treats us as he would his own son, the Lord Jesus. So back to Jesus' words to Mary. This amazing doctrine of adoption is what we're pointed to here when Jesus said the wonderful, wonderful words, my father and your father. Well, Mary understood her responsibility now. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Mary did as she was told. And in doing so, she functioned as Jesus' messenger to Jesus' messengers, the apostle to the apostles. What a joy it must have been for her to tell them all of that, of what she had seen and what she had heard, to tell them all that Jesus had said. Well, I want to leave you with some thoughts that I hope you will continue to ponder. Some thoughts just to continue to ruminate on. Here's the first one, number one. The significance of the women believers in Jesus. The significance of the women followers of the Lord. Women played a significant role in the New Testament. They followed Jesus as he ministered on earth. Scripture tells us some of them even supporting him financially in his ministry. But we especially see this connection with the end of Jesus' earthly life. When all the male disciples, except perhaps John, had gone into hiding once Jesus was arrested, we find several women still remaining publicly faithful to the Lord. Several women visited Jesus' tomb. In fact, female believers seem to have been especially, intently devoted to Christ. Of course, that's something that's always been true of godly women, right? Psalm 31, Proverb 31. They fear the Lord, they honor and reverence him. My point is, if you're a woman, you should take inspiration from this, from the pure hearted, devotion to Christ of these women and from the special place that they clearly occupied in Jesus's ministry on earth. Women are significant in the New Testament, and that is still true in the church today. Number two is the significance of our equal adoption. The significance of our equal adoption. Here's why I put it in those terms. Let's go back to some other doctrines. Take the doctrine of regeneration, what it means to be born again, born from above, our spiritual birth. It is exactly the same in every person's life. Conversion might look differently depending on the life that you've lived, but regeneration is the same for all of us. It unites us. The doctrine of justification, I could say the same thing. This legal pronouncement of being forgiven, it's the same for every believer, and I can also say about adoption. Adoption is equal to all God's people. There is no difference in any particular believer status in the family. And therefore, the privileges of adoption and the duties of adoption are all equal for all believers. From the least significant person in the world's eyes to the most famous and prominent I wasn't asked to speak at that conference this week. But I'm adopted just like they are. Let's talk about the privileges. What are are those equal privileges? Well, there's no way I can go into depth in all of these, but here's some. Just because we're adopted, we have access into the Father's presence. We can walk with him. In a personal relationship with love. It's as if Christ Himself says to you, You can now speak to Him the way I speak to Him, with the same sense of intimacy, with the same assurance that He loves you. As His children, we therefore have an open throne of grace with God. We have a place we can always go to to receive God's loving, fatherly care and provision for our lives as a father he comforts us with love and compassion so that includes the privilege of prayer when we come to God our father through Christ we can be certain that our heavenly father answers our prayers according to his perfect holy wise will for whatever is for our good and his glory our father makes promises and all of his promises are ours And we can rest in them. And here's a great one. This is so special. What a privilege this one is. Equally, we each can enjoy the discipline of the Lord. You see, that's actually a good thing. He trains his children for holiness. Listen to Hebrews 12, 6 and 7. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines And he scourges every son he receives, not those who are not his children. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. The reason you keep serving Christ and persevere in your faith is because he keeps correcting us and disciplining us. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If the father loves the son, he will. So the fact that he chastens and corrects us is a great gift of his fatherly love to us. We have an eternal inheritance because he's adopted us. It's an eternal inheritance of the glory of heaven, each of us, because each of us are equally co-heirs with Christ. We have the same Holy Spirit indwelling us, the one who enlightens us, guides us, seals us permanently. We have equal security in Christ. God preserves us in faith all the way to the end. And when we fall, he restores us. And he keeps us from falling away completely. Scripture even tells us that he gives us his angels to minister to us and watch over us in ways that we don't even know about. Maybe just one more thing. Because we're adopted, we're part of a brotherhood now. The church family that we love, made up of our other brothers and sisters who have also been adopted. It's not presumptuous to think about all these things. It's not presumptuous to even expect and enjoy and to take advantage of all these privileges. In fact, the opposite of true is true, which is something Richard Phillips captures. Let me read it. It is no longer presumption for a believer to expect God's acceptance. Rather, the presumptuous Christian is the one who doubts God's acceptance, love, and care. It's pretty presumptuous to say, I'm not sure God's telling me the truth privileges, but we also have equal duties. It goes along with being adopted into the family. What are those duties? Well, to show childlike reverence for our Father, honor our Father, to submit to the Father's every providence of how His will unfolds in our lives, and to do it with joy and without grumbling to, in a sense, live a quiet life before Him. It honors Him to delight in his word, to rejoice in his presence, to resist every hindrance that keeps us from resting in this adopting love. And we have a duty to imitate him or to put it in family terms. We have the duty to pursue exhibiting the family likeness. You see, all of that should thrill us and inspire us and encourage us because the God of the universe, the very one who has created all things and who sustains all things, has adopted us. That God is our Heavenly Father. And He's the best Father. He's the most faithful of all fathers. And He loves us with an unending love. Listen to 1 John 3.1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. That we would be called children of God. Now, there's a liability that goes with this as well. You see, to be adopted into that family, the family that we were snatched out of doesn't like it. To have God as our father, that invites hostility from the world because the world's thinking and values are antithetical to our family's thinking and values. I said things like, like that to my own children when they would say, Well, so and so gets to go do something. I go, well, they're not a hardy. Hardies don't do that. If you want to go ask them to adopt you, that's a different issue, you know. We have thinking and values that are antithetical to the world's thinking and values. Different families in fact, that same passage I just read, 1 John 3.1, about seeing what a great love the Father has for us, it goes on to say this, 1 John 3.1, for this reason, the world does not know us because it does not know him. Different families. Number three, ponder the significance of God's perfect fatherhood. I'm saying a little more about it, making a point of it here. Number three, ponder the significance of God's perfect fatherhood because some Christians struggle to think rightly about God as father because of what they've experienced in their own families. They struggle to think of God as a loving father because of their disappointment in their own father or even the abuse of by their own father, their earthly fathers. But let me tell you something. God is not like that. God is perfect in all he does. He is the true father that all our hearts yearn for. He's the father who cares for us in unfailing, unbreakable covenant love. So don't let the failure of your sinful earthly father, cloud your understanding of and your hope in and your love for and your rest in your perfect heavenly father. Number four, ponder the significance of our family business. We do have one. We have a family business. Go back to our text. Jesus did not want Mary Magdalene to just stay lingering outside the tomb, lingering And just clinging to him. The father of our Lord Jesus Christ was her father, and that meant there was an obligation to work now in the family business, which is what? Telling others about the risen Christ. That's still true for us. We are to take the gospel message to the world, it's the news of forgiveness of your sin. Justification, having a legal standing with God now, being accepted by Him through faith, by grace through faith, adoption by His grace. This is what Jesus does to call other brothers and sisters to Himself. He uses brothers and sisters. We're His messengers, just as Mary was. Gospel proclamation is the family business, and we're to work joyfully and hard in that. And lastly, number five, it certainly goes without saying, and it goes with the other passages we've studied here. It's the significance of the resurrection. I've stated this previously. It is impossible to believe in the Jesus of the Bible without believing that he rose bodily from the dead. Romans 10, 9 is clear. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Those who reject this doctrine of the resurrection of Christ are outside the sphere of salvation. They're not saved. And their rejection is not based upon a lack of evidence. That's not it. It's the state of their heart. It's the stubborn unbelief driven by the love of sin in their heart. The bottom line is they don't want to accept the Christ of the Scriptures because He's God. If they accept Him, they'll therefore be accountable to Him for every violation of His law. So if you're outside the family bond of God's love in Christ, if you are still laboring under the guilt of your sins, if you have no hope for a future home in heaven, then hear the call of Christ in the gospel today. He is a God of compassion and mercy toward believing and repentant sinners. If you trust in Christ, you become a child of God and are blessed with adoption into his love. John 1.12 says, As many as received him, to them... He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these astounding, simple words that the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is our Father, and that the one we serve, our Savior, is our older brother, And we are part of the family of God because of your love for us. So Lord, help us, those who know you, to never forget this, to ponder the richness of the doctrine of adoption and the significance of what it is for our lives. Help us in moments of anxiety and fear to rest in the love of God that comes from you, our Father. May we live quiet lives, trusting all that you do. And Lord, I pray for the one who's here, who is laboring and living under the guilt of their sin, that you would free them today. Bring them humbly to Christ to cry out, forgive me, I'm a sinner, and save me. Lord, as we now remember all that Christ has done to make all this possible. His death on the cross, may our hearts be filled with joy even more. In our Savior's name, amen.